This is one of a series of informal conversations where we ask the faculty member to describe their innovative practices. Today, we're speaking with John Misak, Assistant Professor in the Long Island English Department of the College of Arts and Sciences. John started at New York Tech in 2003 and started full-time in 2016. He also works as a tutor in the Writing Center. Before joining New York Tech, full-time, I guess, right? John was a video game reviewer from 1998 to 2007. Among the courses he teaches, he particularly enjoys detective fiction, technical writing, and writing for the health professions. And he recently worked with iDesign to put a seven-week version of writing for the health professions online for the RN to BS program. Welcome, John. Hi. Thanks for having me. So what course is your absolute favorite to teach? The detective fiction course you mentioned probably is number one uh, for a few reasons. First, I'm a fiction writer myself, a detective uh, novel writer, so I've got a passion for it. On top of that, what I did a couple of years ago was I took that course and I geared it towards first just medical students. Uh, I had a section geared specifically towards them because there's a very strong parallel between uh, investigation of murder and an investigation of an illness. As a matter of fact, there's a TV show called House MD that took Sherlock Holmes and turned, it, turned him into a doctor. So Holmes to House. Uh, and it follows very much along that line. And students really took to the idea of understanding how to take something like investigation and applying it to their careers. And now what I've done is I've, I really just make the course geared towards all the students' careers. So one of the papers that they write is, well, out of all the detectives you've read about in this class, which one do you think would make the best computer uh, engineer or architect and why? What is it about their traits as an investigator that would make them good in that field? And they really take that engagement went up incredibly when they're writing about something that's directed at them and their careers. Uh, research increased as well. And it just made the course so much more fun to teach when students are engaged on that level. You mentioned something to me before about um, applying what the students are learning in your technical writing class, for instance, to what they do or what they will do in their professions. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that? Sure. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be able to have students understand how to write a report. It's another thing to have them write a report that's based on something they know about and that they will be writing about in the future. A lot of students come to my English classes, my writing classes, one of the biggest complaints is I'm a terrible writer. Uh, I don't understand story. I don't understand narrative. Even my 151 class, which is writing uh, college writing, uh, I do literature in that class, and a lot of them don't understand or don't think that they're good at what they do. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm sorry, good at um, literature and understanding it. So I try and bring something in that they're familiar with. Like, for instance, I like them to write about what they're going to do in the future. So I will, instead of having them read a poem to start the class, I'll have them read a readme file from, soft, from a software program. Or I'll have some code up on the screen and I'll show them, look, inside the code, there is a narrative here. There's a story being told. For people that don't know, software code has hashed out lines in it where it's the software designers writing to each other and telling them, telling them why they did what they did, why they updated what they updated, or why they changed what they changed. A readme file is something that comes with a piece of software that explains how to use that software and usually includes all the updates that, that happened and why they happened. And that is communication and that is narrative. And when students see that they've been doing that all their lives, you know, whether it be through video games, whether it be through chatting with, with friends, whatever it is, there's narrative all around them. To immerse them in it in ways that they're already familiar with 
removes that barrier, that aversion that they have to things they only quote unquote know how to do it. So they have a pre preconceived idea that they that they have that they're insufficient these skills when they've been using them all the time. They write all the time. They read all the time. I did see something in the chat, by the way. That, that is my volume too low? Do I need to turn my yeah? Microphone? If you can go into the settings and just turn up the microphone. Sure. It's up. It's up as high as it can go. Is that better if I'm if I lean in a little bit? That's better. Okay, so I'll just lean in a little bit. That's fine. Minaz, is that better? Can we get a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Sorry about that. Okay. Yes, it's much better. Thank you. All right, no problem. Excellent. Um, and how do you use AR and VR to engage your students? One of the first ways that that I used VR was to in introduce to students this concept of sense of place, sense of presence, VR, virtual reality, for it to work, the user has to feel present within the environment that's been created. So if I create a video game, that's a VR game, for players to really believe it, that suspension of disbelief that we talk about in English classes, when the audience member believes that's what's happening on the stage is, is true, same thing happens in a video game uh, with VR. So in order to do that, you need details. And there's one game that I have students play called Rush of Blood. It's a game, you're, you're in a roller coaster and it's sort of a haunted house. And it's all about what's called jump scares. It, it tries to scare you. As a matter of fact, my, my sister-in-law played the game and she fell out of the chair one time. She, she got such a jump scare from it. I try not to have that happen in class. But the idea is you don't feel immersed unless the details are there. So when they look to the left and right and they see dust in their flashlight and they see a chair that looks real and the sounds and everything else just feels so real, they are now so focused on that that the game can scare them. In writing, when you write a personal narrative, for instance, a lot of times we overlook details because we're so familiar with them. I know my mother, I know what type of person she is, so I just put her into my story assuming everybody else does. Now, seasoned writers or just people that have a passion for it sometimes might know that, active readers might know that and, and do that, but most people writing this for the first time you know, on a college level, don't think about those details. So when I show them the game, I tell them to pay attention to these little details and how they effectively set up the scares. And then go back to your writing and take a look and say, okay, where could you have given some more details so that this scene, this emotional scene that you're writing pays off? It doesn't pay off if I don't know the character of your best friend or your mother, or one of the best ways I explain it too is, you can tell me that your friend Joe is funny, but it's much better if you illustrate why they're funny. So those little details that we tend to overlook because of familiarity become important in writing and the connection with, with VR does that. AR works, uh, Kevin Lagranger, Dr. Kevin Lagranger in the English department and I created a game based on Hamlet where it's a, it's a 3D game that also has an AR element that again, increases immersion. Uh, the memory retention rate on AR and VR is roughly two times higher than traditional methods. So you remember things more. It stimulates the hippocampus, which creates memory. What we have students do is just get immersed a little bit in the idea of Hamlet and one minor detail about the play before they read. So they make a decision about whether or not they think Hamlet saw his father's ghost. And then they go in and read armed with a little bit of confidence and a little bit of investment within the story. So now they're going to look to see if they were right or wrong. And it gets, it, it gets them into that first page. It gets them in the door where sometimes they might stand at that door and say, well, 
this is Shakespeare. I can't read this. I have no interest in this. It's written 500 years ago, 400 years ago. I'm not interested in it. And it turns out they can be. Is there a teacher that you had or a student that you've taught that changed how you approach your teaching? Yeah, uh, I had a a couple of teachers that um, they pushed me to think differently. Uh, I had a teacher when I went for my doctor at St. John's, Harry, and he, and he wanted to be called by his first name. That was, that's how I spoke, but he gave me a hard time. And he said, you're doing what you need to do and you're getting through, but you're not doing what you want to do. And he was right. I was, you know, I was working at the same time. I wanted to get my doctorate. I wanted to just get from A to B and he wouldn't let me. He was the pit stop. Guys saying, you know what? You need to slow down. We need to change your tires. You need to think about your plan. Don't just hit the gas pedal. Slow down and think about your strategy. And that I've had a couple of students, any student that says, hey, you know, you did this and it really. I didn't get into this class ever, but you did this. Got into it. it kind of reminds me of that in a way. It brings me back to that idea of, well, maybe it's my job to tell students, yes, this is a required course. It's a core course. I know it's not your highest priority. I, I can fool myself and think it is. I know it counts on your GPA as much as any other course, but I understand that if you've got two projects to do, that mine might take a back seat. But it's my job to create that immediacy in the class. And maybe by showing students a different way of learning, that can happen. So it's kind of, what, what these students and what Harry taught me was to ask, ask my students, is this working? Do you like this? What could I do better? Or, okay, th this assignment's over. What'd you think about that assignment? You know, and don't just tell me, okay, I like this assignment because it was short. Tell me, what about it do you think in the future? Would you assign this to um, a, a class? Because that's what my professor did too. Is it, would, would you have your students go through your class the way you're going through mine? And I said, right. no. And I had, the, the sad thing is I was interested in the class. I was just a little overwhelmed at the time. And he said, but that happens. But even in your most overwhelmed moments, you need to slow down and not just try and get through all the, the stops, you know, do what you have to do. Hmm. It is harder with classes students don't want to be in. I like teaching the non-majors biology because it's that same population of students who need the class to graduate, don't want to be there. And I love that challenge of trying to turn them around. It, it makes me think more about my teaching than I would if I had students that were passionate about it from the mm -hmm. outset. I do get students that are passionate once we get into topics. They, students that get pa passionate about Shakespeare, passionate about Hamlet, passionate about Oedipus. But I need to bring, sometimes bring them there. Some come to the class that way. I, can, I don't want to paint with a broad brush and say that I don't get students that are interested. I, I do. But a lot of them are distracted because they see this as just, you know, it, it's the subway ride to the airport, to your vacation. Right. And what you have to realize is, okay, the subway ride is part of the vacation. Don't forget that. Don't try and skip through the subway ride to get to the plane, the airport to get to, you have to think of it all as one thing. That is beautiful. I'm going to steal that. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the changes that happened a little over a year ago when COVID hit. Okay. Um, how did you feel back in March, 2020? when we had to move to remote teaching? I thought I was prepared at first because I don't know if you remember, I had, we had a discussion, I think through email where I had tested out Zoom with my classes yes. before. And I, I said, you know, let's have everybody do this because then we'll all be, and I think 
hours later was the announcement that we're going to Zoom quicker than we had anticipated. So I thought I was prepared. And I guess the way I felt was unprepared. Mm-hmm. I, I realized that I didn't have enough time to practice. I was happy I went through the motions, but I thought that my goal was to take my in-person classes that were now on Zoom and make those Zoom classes as in-person as possible. And that failed. Mm-hmm. It failed. Uh, it failed positively, if it makes any sense. It made me rethink some things, but, and students appreciated the effort, but it was a lot of work with very little payoff. And Why did it fail? What failed? This, it's, with, it, it was just the fact that you had students that were rushed to an online class. I was rushed into the, the modality of, of Zoom, and the sense of presence wasn't there. Students were distracted, not as distracted as they became. They became more distracted, I think. But mm-hmm. I, I, I think they, they were looking for the same thing that I was looking for, that same feeling. And it was already gone. We were holding on to something that had already passed. And we just needed that transitional period to kind of say goodbye to uh, the online classes for a little while. I mean, the in-person classes, sorry, for a little while until, you know, we can go back. Even then we'll go back differently, but I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. Right. So you had the spring, you had the in-person not adapting to Zoom, and then you find out we're going to stay remote in fall 2020. What did you change and how did you change it? Well, I'll give you another analogy. The analogy I okay. used for March was, if you want to use a running analogy, we weren't running a race. We were running from a rabid dog. We had to get up to full speed and just get away from whatever it was that we were running from. So that we didn't have a goal, so to speak. We were just running from this disease and we were trying to make things work. Over the summer and into the fall, now we're getting ready for a race. Now I had time to think about tech. There's no technique so much there. The first Zoom class was, hey, are you all okay? You know, what's going on? Um, which I think was also extremely valuable. I think my role in that first Zoom thing was to really just try and help students make Yes. You know, get, get the project into, be flexible. I, I realized that if instead of getting every project in, students got 80% of them in, but they were, most of the class got that 80% in, that's a lot better than saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to mark you late for this not getting in on time. You have to get everything in. I know it's a pandemic, but you have to do it. I decided to go a different route with that. And I found that students appreciated it, number one. And number two, I got better quality work on the things that they did hand in. And we learned what we needed to learn. I always pack in a little extra into my class in case mm-hmm. something happens. I can get sick. Anything else can happen. I didn't expect this, but I, I think that that flexibility worked. Going into the next semester, I realized that students needed more guidance. And one of the things I did was offer them videos on explaining assignments. Instead of, I I gave them sample documents, I had given them written explanations, but students really want that sense of presence. Even in a fully online class, they wanna know who's teaching them. So by by having that video and an unedited video, it doesn't have to be anything slick. It just should just be me or the professor talking and saying, okay, here's the document and this is why you wanna do it this way. And they'll know what's important and what's not. you know, in terms of uh, you need to follow this format. But when I say follow the format, I mean this. And I can write that. But as we all know, people skim over writing. Right. So the, the, the voice and the video and the screenshots, they all helped. Uh, it helped me, too, because I felt like I was being more part of something at the same time. Because I missed that part. Right. I missed those questions after class of, you know, what did you mean by this? Because or in class, those questions, because students weren't asking them so much in uh, the Zoom classes at, at first. 
that fear of stepping on somebody, I think was the major issue that needed to be overcome. When I told my students, step all over me anytime you want, get comfortable interrupting me and just learn the etiquette of how to do it. That's all. Just be nice about it. But better to get your question out than to wait because you're going to lose it. Before we started, you were talking about flexibility. Mm. Yes. And you you ask your students a lot how how everything is going. Can you talk a little bit about what you would ask them about and the kind of feedback you got, what you changed? Yeah, I, I told my students I always did but I started doing it even more once the pandemic hit. And the first questions were really about how online learning was going overall. You know, okay. let's say in eight, end of April of 2020, how was online learning going? And I said, you know, I would say, this is anonymous. Please don't mention anybody by name, classes, professors. I don't want any of that. Just tell me, how is it going? And I started hearing things about what some professors were doing right and what some needed some help. Again, no names were given. I didn't want to know that. But in what went wrong, even things that I did wrong, I could find out what I could do right. And I know it has follow-up questions. Okay, you said that this was a problem. Well, how would you fix that? What, what can we do to make things more interactive? I think you want this, but I don't know for sure if that's what you really want. Do you want more Zoom classes? You know, we would meet once a week and then that second time would be for students that wanted that second class, a Monday, Wednesday class, for instance. Do you want that to be permanent or do you want that to be flat? And they, they appreciate the flexibility. Most students showed up to both anyway, but they like the freedom of not having to. So I would supplement with more online resources for the students that didn't go, they'd have the recordings to watch and then some online resources. So they were getting those contact hours in, but it's not just about contact hours. It's about quality of those contact hours. So then I, in the next semester, I started asking, well, what type of assignments do you want now? I used to do presentations in some of my classes. Do you want to do that on Zoom? Would you prefer to record them and post them as opposed to doing them live? And I found that most students want to record them and post them because they wanted, as much as they don't care about our perfection in our videos, they care about their own. But they're also good at those things. They love putting videos up and they prefer that. And I said, do you want one big video project? Or would you like to do some small, like 60 second ones? Would you like that? And some students chose that. They like the idea of flexibility, whether it be in due dates, which I try not to be too flexible about because then you can get into a little bit of difficulty, but flexibility on the types of assignments. As long as they meet the criteria, the rigor that I that I feel is necessary for the class, after that, it should be about what the students want. So do you do this as a contract syllabus where they tell you in advance what they're going to do, or do you give them options as the course progresses? Let's take a 304 class. That's my tech writing class. There are okay. three assignments or four assignments that, that are really, they need to be a certain way. Right. So like an instruction set, I think needs to be a certain way, but then there's still some flexibility within that. And what I was doing was saying, okay, you did your instruction set. Now the next step is to do a larger instruction set, perhaps. Or if you want, you can do a video based upon the instruction set that you did. What would you rather do? Would you rather now write a script for a video on instructions and give me my, your audience analysis of who you're doing the video for and why you did it this way? It hits all the points that you need to hit for the class in terms of the learning objectives. It's just a different assignment. Now, I would think that they would prefer that. Some did and some didn't. So there's where the flexibility is. It's I have my learning outcomes mapped out. That is pretty much contract for the class. How we reach those, I've become a little bit more flexible about. Because you do get into a habit as, as an instructor. You know, this is what I've done for the last five years. It's simple. I can continue to do that. But luckily for, for me, I get bored with repetition. 
So I don't mind switching things up. It makes things more interesting for me. Um, but students appreciate that ability to say, hey, you know what I want to do? You know, Professor, you said you're a video game reviewer or they look me up online and find out that I was. Can I write a video game review? Can I do a video of a video game review? And I said, sure, we can do it. You know, let's figure out where we can put that in. You want to make that extra credit? Do you want to make it part of this project? As long as the learning outcomes are hit, then that's fine. So before we started, you said Zoom is not an in-person class. We can't try to make Zoom like an in-person class. We need to make them better Zoom classes. Mm -hmm. What is a good Zoom class? One that has a high level of participation. And that is sort of, you want to call it the holy grail of learning is, is obviously interaction. But it's much like I had to stop worrying about students who might seem sleepy in class because maybe I, when I first started teaching, I thought that that was a judgment on me. You know, when you come to this profession, depending on how you come to it, I came to it as an adjunct. You're basically, you come out of school, you're given a syllabus and a textbook and are told to go teach. And at some point, about three weeks into that first semester, you start wondering, do I know what I'm doing? And is somebody going to come in the door and say, hey, you know what? This is a mistake. So, you know, go do something else, you know, go. There's plenty of jobs out there for you. So there's that constant worry. And maybe you see students that are sleepy in the class and you think that they're bored uh, because of you. It's not. They're, maybe they're, they're, they're tired because they worked at night and you don't know that. So you got to make the same assumptions about your students in your Zoom class. Just because they don't have the camera on doesn't mean they're not engaged. It's up to me to keep them engaged. And just so you know, one of the first times I was ever observed by another professor, that professor fell asleep in my class. 15 minutes in and leaning on the person next to them, head on, like on a plane. When I had to go for that evaluation, I didn't know what to say. And I share, I ended up sharing an office a year later with this professor. And I, I looked and I said, I have to ask you a question. She said, I know what you're going to ask. And I'm sorry, I was, I was working all night and I hadn't slept. I said, but you gave me a great review. So I really can't complain. But um, I realized that, that wasn't because my class was bad. I was worried about that. It was my second time being observed. But it turned out she was really tired. And students that are maybe disengaged, I found it in my in my in-person classes too. They seem disengaged when they're really not. And one tool that I found that really brings out the engagement, and I've written about this too, is using Google Docs as a discussion document. What I do is I set up a Google Doc with questions and students, I have it shared in my Zoom class and students will go in live and answer. And what you see is you see the interactivity, but students see each other typing and it inspires them to type too. So when I ask a question, okay, what did you think of this Sherlock Holmes story? You know, what do you think of the character of Sherlock Holmes? One student will answer, two students will answer. The third student might say, well, student one said something very similar to what I said. I'm not going to say anything that's already been said. What you miss is the intricacies of what they would have said. They might've said something very similar to what person one said, but there's a little nuance in there that is missed and their ability to present, you know, to, to participate is missed. When you have them all right in the Google Doc, they get their, their thoughts out and you see those nuances in between them. And then they feel inspired to say more. And that can lead to discussion because I it's fairly anonymous in the Google Doc. If I really want to pay close attention, I can see who's typing, but I generally try not to do that. But I'll ask somebody and I'll say, look, if you feel comfortable, so you, someone said this, why did you say that? And they can put it in the chat or they can um, they can speak in class. And I just find that they all answer the question, they all are following along, and they all know what I'm talking about in the next step. So that Google Doc, I think, really offers a way to make a Zoom class 
a bit more interactive by using the same medium. It's the medium that they're on already. It's the same way I used to have students in class use their phones to get over my bother of seeing them text on their phones. So right. now if they're typing on their phones doing assignment for me, it's not bothering me anymore. Right. I got over that, but in addition, and going two phones at one time, I'm like, yeah, okay, we have to do something about this. Um, what about classes that are fully online? How do you get students to engage? How do you get that dynamism in an Same online way. course? I, I use the Same Google Doc with that too. Uh, I use message boards as well, uh, the discussion board. Um, I do like having students post videos when they can. Uh, if not videos, if they want to do an audio. Um, I don't use voice thread per se, but I do have them just post an audio file. Right. And, and have them... Because again, writing is one thing. They can type something out. They can answer a question and it's automatic. But when they're speaking it, again, that personality comes out. I want to get to know them and I want them to get to know me. And that's one way to do it. And I'll have them share that with other students when they feel comfortable to do so. And I put those same instructional videos up on the assignments in my online classes too, so that they don't just see a face or whatever Google says about my name when they take my class or whatever rate my professor says now, uh, they see me. And they understand, they hear me. And I think that's really important. Right. Students are looking for contact in any way. They are. The complaints about online classes, in my experience, and I do a lot of polling on this, is they don't feel that connection. So any way that I can make that connection happen. In previous semesters, I've actually had students mandatory. They have to work with me on a project. In other words, we go into Google Docs or we'll go into Zoom. Google Docs works better for me where I'll be live in there with them and we go over their draft. They explain mm -hmm. why their draft, I explain maybe some comments that I made. Um, and, you know, because again, when you see, when you get comments back on a paper, it, it always feels harsh. I feel like I'm invading on that personal space of, of the student when I do that. So I'd rather talk them through it and say, look, you did really well here, but you missed an opportunity to drive that point home, as opposed to circling it and saying, make strong, you know, I don't like the term make stronger, but make more effective, which can be vague sometimes. Right, right. So sometimes in class, there's there's a moment where everything pulls together and it's almost magical because everyone's in the same place. They're all fully engaged and the class really is a community. Can you tell, tell us about one of those moments? Yeah, and that was accidental. Something yeah, they're usually accidental, right? You fall into them. I was stressed, bored. I've had a, this semester has been on a personal level, very difficult. And I wasn't operating at hundred percent and I had my lesson planned for the day and I didn't feel it. I just, so I, I went, I winged it. And I told my detective fiction class, We're, you're going to help me solve a murder. I'm going to take a story that exists and I'm going to give you clues and you're going to investigate together. I put them into breakout rooms based upon what they what they thought the next step should be. There's a body found, there's a store to the left, there's a place to the right, uh, there's this happening. This is this is what the uh, policeman on the, police person on the scene ha has told you, what would you do next? And based upon that, they went into break breakout rooms. They came out of those, I, I popped in, but they came out of those breakout rooms and my chat lit up and it was just direct messages from students saying, wow, this is awesome. You know, I try and pay attention to your class all the time, but this time I didn't have to try which I kind of took as a compliment and maybe a past yeah. insult, but a compliment now, but they, they said, it just felt so interactive. And now I understand why you're teaching us investigation because now I see 
Because what I was telling them is your choice on what to do next is indicative of what type of investigator you are. And you're investigating in every part of your life, your job, whatever it might be. When you meet a boss for the first time, you're investigating them a little bit, trying to figure out what it's going to be like to work with them. And you have to find that, that information. They're not going to give you that right away. They're not going to say that they're difficult. They're not going to say that they're easy most times. And they might lie. They might say they're easy because they really believe they are, but they might be difficult. You have to investigate that. And they really appreciated the interactivity on Zoom. Um, I did it again, and I tried to use my room here with clues. And I, I would just hide a clue somewhere, um, which sometimes works. I have, I have to also do it written, too, because some students, their video doesn't work well enough. Or if there's a student that doesn't have the ability to do that, then we need to um, make that accessible as possible. But anything to just make an interaction. And they, they're like, you know, this is a great plan. And I laughed. I said, it's not really a plan. I I just came up with it. I wanted to try something new. I was bored. Um, and they they got the same value. It was the same learning outcome done in a different way. And one student uh, that had kind of been a little quiet for most of the semester opened up after that. Uh, when I gave him the opportunity to work on a project with me, I'm, I'm developing a plan engine, it's called. It's like a narrative game engine. I'm having students help me develop this. Uh, based on a book that I wrote, because I just want to take a story that existed. And that all of a sudden he opened up, wow, he was, I didn't realize we had these opportunities to do this at this school. And I said, of course, you know, that's, there's always opportunities to do things. And maybe sometimes it's we professors' fault and not bringing them out sooner. But this student has really opened up and really felt more connected to the school. So I, that to me, that's just a great success. Yeah, that's great. So as we move into a post-COVID world, mm. um, which of your changes do you think will stick? How do you think teaching and learning will be transformed as a result of this past year? Well, I think perspective is number one. Because if we went back in a time machine really far and made me 18 again, and you told me that I'd be able to take classes in my house when I wanted to, or that I would end up teaching and doing the same thing, I'd be wowed by the technology. I'd be so excited about it. How did we look at it when we made this transition? I think a lot of people looked at it as difficult. A lot of complaining about Zoom, Zoom fatigue, which exists, and I know that, but our perspective was a little off. Understandably so, we were thrust into this and maybe we wanted, we wanted that thing we didn't, couldn't have anymore. Something was taken from us and we focused more on what was taken maybe than what we got. And what we got was a technology that I think should continue. I think Zoom has a benefit, maybe in a hybrid model or a, a blended model, where it's online, but for those students that really don't benefit well from fully online elements, you still have this, this Zoom part where you can help them. Maybe just meet for 45 minutes once a week and say, okay, this is, this is how this is done. And let me share my screen and show you things. Or the fact that I now record things, uh, you know, instructions, I think that is a, is a major move forward. It's all about flexibility, I think, that's really important. Uh, as I said before, and thinking about the student first. I used to look at my online classes that should be um, just online versions of my in-person classes. And you can't do that with, with an online class. You have to build it from the ground up. And the experience that I've got from my students and the feedback that I have has helped me design my Canvas modules better because I designed them the way I thought would work, the way my mind works, and that doesn't work for everybody. So. When I see that, okay, yes, I explained it this way, but I did so much work explaining it this way, I should really explain it a different way. So right. that flexibility in teaching, 
that flexibility in design and just asking students, hey, how are you? How did this work out? What would you like to do moving forward? Or the semester's over, tell me what I got right and tell me how I can get something wrong. You're gonna give me an evaluation for the school, but give me a direct one that's anonymous that tells me exactly what needs to be done, good and bad. Nice. Would anybody who's here like to unmute and ask a question or make a comment? I think there was a question in the chat. There was. I, I tried to work it in as we were talking. Okay, good. So one Before. thing I like to do in these conversations, ah, Vanessa. Hi. I'm sorry, I'm multitasking, but um, thank you so much. I'm really, the series has been great to just to hear a little bit at length how faculty really like to work from the different disciplines. And so I work with students over the semester and oftentimes the most class-like setting I work with them is the series of um, workshops and I focus them on mapping or different types of information resources. But I'm really interested in what the technical writing syllabus looks like, because I think I'd always like to make what I'm working on with them very relevant. Um, so if if anyone is open to sharing what a technical writing syllabus includes, I'd love to kind of hone in on some of those. Sure. Um, I could send you one for sure. Oh, that'd be great. I'll just drop you an email and you can just respond. Yeah, Thank you so much. No problem. So I like to wrap up with a recommendation. Um, is there a particular app or a technology tool that you use that others might not that improves your teaching or streamlines your preparation? Yeah, I think there's a few things. Um, Canvas, by the way, which again, one of those things where we want what we don't have anymore sometimes. I think Canvas is great and we have to look at it as this is what we have. and. Grader. By the way, in terms of grading, there's a major time saver. I've actually been able to grade while I'm walking my dog on my phone, depending on how it's set. So if you use the rubrics and everything else, it just it's an absolute time saver for short assignment. Um, as far as technology apps, I would say either use the Canvas Studio app or another video app to communicate with your students, as I've mentioned before. And what I said before, too, is so important. Don't think about how good the presentation values are. Students do not care. Make sure that you're not, you know, with a camera here and you're getting the up the nose shot. Try and make your camera look as good as possible. But other than that, leave your mistakes in, your, your misstatements, and laugh at yourself. Students will know who you are when they do that. They're not looking for perfection. They're looking for connection. And there's a big connection that can be made in a fully online class if you give them that, uh, that, that bit of technology. I think that really helps. And Google Docs, I don't know if anybody uses them, but that live doc to have students in that document. It, when I first used it in class, in an in-person class, and just heard the students clicking away and saw it on the, on the projection screen, just this writing was happening and these reactions were happening and thoughts were going from here onto the screen. I, I just thought it was fantastic. And I think one, one other, two other things I would say in closing, I'll, I'll hit the flexibility part again. That, and I can be rigid sometimes, I'm set in my ways, being flexible has made things easier on me and definitely on students. And changing what I am to a student, I'm not the expert as much as I am the guide. 
in the sense that I know the path. I can show you where the danger is on the path and I can help you. I might not be able to, your specific uh, discipline. I might not know enough about that, but that's what your, those professors are for. But I can help you communicate along that path. And I'll give you one last analogy. I was in Orlando and there was this legendary haunted house. Michael Jackson actually was trying to get it built into his house. That's how much he loved it. He would go there constantly, pictures of him everywhere. We're online to get in, me and my whole family, and a bunch of teenagers bust out the door and just keep running down the street. That's how scared they were. My dad never scared of anything in his life. We're walking through this and I actually see something dark. It's dark. I see something dark passing. It was my dad running away. That's how scary it was. But in front, there was this little boy, about nine years old. He was in front of me and he was going to be the lead. And I said, well, no, no, you should. You can't do this. I mean, you're a little kid. And he goes, no, I've been through this 50 times. So he walked us through and we had to hold on to each other, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And my brother-in-law ripped my belt loop. He was so scared. But this, this kid would say, I would go, let's go left. He goes, no, you don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to go left, go right instead. So we had a scary experience, but we were guided by somebody that knew, had been down the path before and we got through it. Whereas other people ended up running out the door, scared, crazy. We got through because we had a guide. It doesn't matter who the guide is. It's just that they know where we're going. So I'm the, in some ways that nine-year-old boy getting you through the haunted house of writing. Very nice. Yes. John, thank you so much for spending time talking today. Yes, my pleasure. Um, thank you to everyone who came for joining us today. We've been speaking with John Misak, Assistant Professor of English in the College of Arts and Sciences as part of the Great Teaching Series. The conversation's been recorded and will be available on the Center for Teaching and Learning webpage, nyt.edu slash CTL. If you'd like to be featured in the Great Teaching Series, please email the Center for Teaching and Learning at ctl at nyt.edu, or better yet, fill out the form at bit.ly slash great hyphen teaching. Thank you.